Let's pray and just invite God to speak as we uh, get into his word together this morning. God, this is your day. This is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, God. And so as we now have prepared our hearts to hear from you, as we have uh, worshipped you in song, as we've given, God, of this uh, money that you've entrusted to us to steward, as we have just come uh, before you with open hearts, God, now we ask for you to speak. Speak, God, to our individual lives. Speak to our families, God. Speak to our church as we open up your book together today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm set up up here with my water and my cough drops, and so uh, don't panic. If I start coughing, I'll just uh, catch my breath here and... And we'll keep moving. Do you ever feel like your vision for your life and your daily experience of your life don't match up? You know, you kind of have this sense of purpose and this sense of calling in your heart, but your day-to-day experience of life doesn't kind of fit that purpose. I've been there. It's happened in my own life. I've neglected or forgotten my purpose And sooner or later, my behavior gets sidetracked, and I end up waiting tables at an Applebee's for a year, which I did, okay? So now and then, I need a little reminder. I need a little refresher to make sure my purpose, my life purpose, and my experience of life match up, that they line up. This is how I feel about God's church at times, At times, at times, it seems to me like our God-given calling, what he designed us to do as a body, as a church, and what we're actually doing don't match. And don't get me wrong, I love God's church. In fact, this year in May marks 18 years for me of serving God's church in a vocational way. So I love God's church. My love for God's church runs from the tips of my toes to the top of my head and permeates nearly everything I do. But I must admit, I've often sensed a disconnect between God's purpose for us, his aim for us, his call for us, his goal for us, and what we're actually doing. But my heart's desire as a pastor is to see those two things match up our calling and purpose and our daily experience and sometimes when we get sidetracked a little bit not just as Bayview Glen a local church but kind of as a broad big C universal church we need just like I do in my own life a little reminder don't we We need a little refresher. So today, in a Palm Sunday message that might be a bit different for those of you who have been around church for a little while, I want to remind us of God's given purpose for us. I want to refocus us on God's design. I want to remember his great calling, his great vision. As the Bible says in Matthew 28, his great commission. And I want us to see that God's vision for us is the very heartbeat of Christ. And hopefully in doing so, we might find that our calling, our purpose, God's vision, and our behavior start to match up a little bit more. So if you have your Bibles, open them up, if you would. Open them up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're kind of winding down our series called Snapshots. In fact, this uh, Good Friday, 10 a.m., we'll have a service in here and we'll kind of 
conclude Snapshots, and then on Easter Sunday, as we kick off the Crown uh, series, you're kind of going to get a two-for-one deal because we'll finish up the Gospel of Luke and we'll move into this five-week series called The Crown on the Kingdom of God. But for now, we'll be in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Uh, Matthew does the same thing in his gospel that Luke does in his gospel. He describes Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Brad, thanks Brad, actually read that text a little while ago from the gospel of Matthew. So Luke does something really similar. He describes Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. But before he does that, he rewinds to the moment just prior to Jesus entering Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, Before the crowd began shouting Hosanna, before the palm branches, before the praises, before the people throw their cloaks down on the ground, before they try to crown Jesus as king, Luke, our narrator, allows us to look into a very tender moment. But before we read this passage, it's important that we see this situation through the eyes of Jesus. So stick with me here. In verse 29, Luke tells us that this moment took place on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is one of three peaks in a 2.2 mile long ridge that runs north and south along the eastern side of Jerusalem. So picture this, we're on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Today the Mount of Olives is relatively bare, but in Jesus' time it would have been covered with olive trees, hence the name. So take a look up here on the screen. This is an artist's rendering of that moment. And though we obviously can't be sure of every detail, this is not an actual picture of Jesus, all right? This is someone drew this down the road. Luke tells us that Jesus is there with his disciples. In fact, if you look closely over there on the right, you can see a couple of female characters there. Remember, Jesus has just left Mary and Martha's house in Bethany, so it's quite possible that they would have accompanied him on his kind of final entrance into Jerusalem. Uh, the city wall that you see there and the, on, off in the distance is Jerusalem's eastern wall. And does everybody see that really prominent white structure in the city there? Everybody see that? That would be the temple. That would be the, that would be the temple. This is what Jesus would have seen. Something very, very similar to this from the Mount of Olives on the eastern side of Jerusalem. He would have taken in a view of the entire city in a single glance. And if you were on the Mount of Olives today, you would see a pretty breathtaking panoramic view of Jerusalem today. So we're going to leave this image up there on the screen as I read the text. Typically we'd put the text up there, but I want to leave the image up there as I read the text out loud. And I'm going to invite you to try to put yourself in this moment. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east. And just before he descends the western slope of the Mount of Olives for the final time, he stands quietly and looks over all of Jerusalem. And in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19, Luke writes this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying... Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because... 
you did not know the time of your visitation. The first thing that we should notice about the narrative here is that Luke uses the phrase, when he drew near. And throughout Luke's gospel, Luke uses this phrase, this exact same phrase, to kind of slow his story down a little bit. So as readers, we should feel like we feel when the movie goes slow motion. You know when you're watching a movie and everything kind of goes slow motion and the screen around the main character kind of gets blurry and everything focuses on the main character? That's what Luke is trying to do with that phrase. And what does our main character do? He weeps. Jesus weeps over the city. But he doesn't just cry. Remember this word weeps from Luke chapter 7? Remember the woman that came in and anointed the feet of Jesus? Does everybody remember that story? This is the same word for weeping. Jesus buckles over in sadness. He wails. He sobs. This is not pretty crying. He's just absolutely losing it emotionally as he looks over the city of Jerusalem. In fact, when Jesus says those words, would that you, even you, he actually starts a phrase that he does not complete. It's as if he can't even finish his sentences because he's so overcome with sadness. And what causes his tears? What prompted this display of unbridled emotion? The city. Luke tells us when he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus weeps for the city. Jesus weeps for the city. It's interesting to me because Jerusalem isn't necessarily Jesus' city. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. I mean, he'd certainly been to Jerusalem quite a bit, but it wasn't his birthplace or his hometown. So why is it that he has such a visceral, emotional response to seeing Jerusalem? Well, in order to understand Jesus' response, this response of emotion from his gut, we have to understand the nature of Jerusalem itself, but more importantly even, cities in general. Okay, Jerusalem, everybody should know this. If not, if you don't know this, it's totally fine. But Jerusalem is kind of critical in God's redemptive plan. It was the capital of the Davidic kingdom. It housed the temple. It was a spiritual pace setter for the nation of Israel. Jerusalem was kind of a big deal. But in addition to Jerusalem's unique role in God's plan, it was a city. And cities, all cities, were critically important. A guy named Tim Keller, he's a popular author and scholar and preacher, one of my favorites actually, points out three ways in which cities were important during the time of Christ. He says that cities were a place of refuge, a place of cultural energy accumulation, and a place of witness. We'll go slowly through all three of those, so stick with me here. First, cities were a place of refuge. Cities were a place of refuge. In the time of Christ, what made a city a city was a wall it, uh, surrounding it. You saw Jerusalem's eastern wall in that picture that we just put up here on the screen. Similar walls, just like that, would have surrounded every city at that time. So as a result, cities could defend themselves in ways that rural communities or tribes on the outskirts of cities could not. 
So when crimes were committed in a city, there were elders and leaders that heard those cases. So jurisprudence developed. When a crime was committed outside of the city, there was just a blood feud. Inside of the city, there was a legal system. So cities became a place of refuge where people could be protected from chaos that went on outside of city walls. The second thing that Tim Keller observes is this, that the cities, biblical cities, were a place of what he calls cultural energy accumulation. Cultural energy accumulation. Because cities had a wall, because they were places of refuge, because they had an economy and trade rather than just subsistence, subsistence farming, because they were densely populated, cities became very diverse. So as cities sprung up, people flocked there. Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, free men, slaves, men, women, weak, strong, everyone. So cities grew in diversity and in population. So culture and art and music just kind of bubbled up from the in inside. Cities became places where cultural energy accumulated. That's why no one travels to the great suburbs of the world, right? Because cultural energy, art and architecture happened in Rome, in Jerusalem, in Istanbul, in cities. Because cities set the pace culturally. Number three, Keller observes this, that cities were a place of witness, Cities were a place of witness. The early church, the apostles, focused their ministry on large cities. Jerusalem, Corinth, Antioch, Ephesus, Philippi, all very large cities, so on and so forth. We could name a whole lot more. They were all large urban environments where the disciples focused their ministry. Why? Because they knew that cities are the spiritual pace setters. In other words, if you win the city for Christ, you win the surrounding community for Christ. And so they focused their ministry on the cities. Cities were a place of witness. Now, just want to give you a little caveat here before we go any further. I don't think that Toronto is the new Jerusalem. I don't think Tr Toronto is Jerusalem 2.0. But I do think we've got a lot in common, don't you? Toronto is a place of refuge. Toronto is a place of refuge. The GTA has more than 6 million people, and check this, more than half of those were born outside of Canada. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, you fit in here. Rich, poor, single, married, young, old, gay, or straight, there is a place for everybody in the greater Toronto area. Heck, there, there might even be an entire neighborhood for, for you here, right? I was driving home from dinner like on Friday night at, down at Church in Wellesley. Has anybody been down to that intersection before? An entire area of the city dedicated to being a place of refuge for a group of people that, also, that, that have been kind of ostracized, have been even the victim of hate crimes at times, because Toronto is a place of refuge for just about anybody. In fact, pretty much everybody. Our city's economy uh, continues to get stronger. I didn't know this, but do you know that 40% of Canada's business headquarters are here in Toronto? Check this out. Toronto produces one-fifth, 20% of Canada's gross domestic product. In other words, people can find work here. People can find health care here. People can find friends here that speak the same language or have common interests or in a similar life stage. No matter who you are, Toronto is a place of refuge. Toronto's also a place of cultural energy accumulation. 
with all of the diversity and population density, and because we're a magnet for people from all over the world, all walks of life, culture has just gone through the roof here. We have three professional sports teams, if you count the Leafs. We have high-quality theater. We've got food from every nation. We've got great music. We've got outstanding education that rivals any place in the world. If you've been in this great city for more than five minutes, I don't need to tell you that Toronto is a place of cultural energy accumulation. But I digress. Back to our text. Jesus knows this about Jerusalem. He knows that Jerusalem is critical because it's an epicenter. It's a spiritual pace setter. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of cultural energy accumulation. And it's all about to collapse. He sees all that Jerusalem could have been and he knows that it will not come to fruition. Look at verse 42. Jesus speaks to the entire city. He says this, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Less than 40 years after Jesus says these words, the future Roman emperor, a guy named Titus, would surround Jerusalem with three Roman legions during Passover when the city's population was at its peak. The Roman army built a barricade around the city, just as Jesus predicted, and they prevented food and supplies from coming in. They used a battering ram to puncture Jerusalem's walls, and and Roman soldiers flooded the city. The temple that you saw in that picture was leveled. Every home was destroyed. Every city was ruined. The Roman army took the destruction of Jerusalem to such an extent that a Jewish historian named Josephus wrote this. There was left nothing to make those that came thither believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. It was desolate. It was destroyed. Jerusalem was no more. Just as Jesus predicted, no stone was left upon another. And what was the cause of all this destruction? What was the reason? Look at the second half of verse 44. Jesus says, because, here's the reason, you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, God used an unknowing Roman army to carry out his judgment upon a city that rejected Jesus as their rightful king. The city fell. No more refuge, no more cultural energy, no more witness because Jerusalem did not acknowledge King Jesus, God in the flesh. Now stick with me here. Just like Jerusalem... Many in the city of Toronto don't yet know the time of God's visitation on the world in the person of his son, Jesus. For Jerusalem, the consequences were physical brokenness and destruction. And for our great city, the consequences are broken lives. And though our brokenness is different than Jerusalem's brokenness 2,000 years ago, it is no less severe. Let's just get a picture quickly together of the brokenness that marks our city even today. 
Track with me here. These stats are up here on the screen. There are 14,000 reported prostitutes in the greater Toronto area. That's just those who've been reported. 70 to 80% of those involved in the Canadian sex industry began as children. 80 to 95% are fleeing sexual abuse that began at home. Prostitution in Canada takes in $500 million every year. According to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, in 2010 alone, the province of Ontario reported 40,000 abortions. The vast majority of those took place in the greater Toronto area. And since not all abortions are reported, that number is much likely higher than 40,000. And those 40,000 don't just represent unborn children. They represent women who are usually, not always, but usually under-resourced, under-supported, and feel like they have no other option. It's not just about unborn babies. It's about the dire situation of broken moms and dads, too. Close to 1,000 suicides take place in Toronto every year. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, suicide is on the rise. According to a report conducted by the Toronto City Hall and the Children's Aid Society in November of last year, there are 146,000 kids living in uh, poverty in Toronto. That's the Air Canada Centre filled to capacity every night for seven nights with children living in poverty. Toronto has the highest rate of child poverty in Canada. According to a number of reports, one in five Canadians say that they struggle with mental illness. Only 30% of those people with mental health problems ever seek help. So from these figures, it can be estimated that there are 250,000 children and youth in Toronto that are experiencing mental health issues, and only about 75,000 of them will ever seek help. Between 1987 and 1999, the rate of increase for hospitalizations for Canadian girls under 15 uh, with an eating disorder was 34%. That's the rate of increase over 12 years. That means eating disorder rates are on the rise. Obesity, addiction, and divorce rates are all on the rise too. And that's just a sampling now. That's just, I just pulled a few. I had pages of statistics. Look up here. Just read it. That's a picture of our great city. This city of diversity and culture and refuge and energy is hurting and broken and wounded. So how will we as a church respond? How will we address these issues? Where will we turn? I read an article this week where a community leader argued that our brokenness is best addressed with more social services and greater commitment from citizens. And I quote, he writes this, I think it comes down partly to political will and partly people in the community saying it's not acceptable for one-third of the children in our city to not have the same opportunity that others have. I agree in part. Yes, all cities need education and social services. Yes, cities need politicians that refuse to rest until citizens' needs are met. Yes, a city needs for its people to have a strong will. Yes, a city needs legislation that protects the weak. But cities aren't buildings and structures. Cities aren't made up of laws and budgets and culture and education. At their core, cities are made up of what? People. Individuals families, faces, and each one of them has a story. So our core problem isn't politics or legislation. 
It's not a lack of resources. It's not a lack of a strong will. Our core problem today is the same as Jerusalem's core problem 2,000 years ago. Our core problem is spiritual. Our core problem is that the hearts of men have not recognized the presence of the living God and his son Jesus. So while politicians fix politics and economists fix economies and legislators fix legislation, the only thing, now check this out, the only thing on the planet that can fix our great city's spiritual problem is a living and active spirit of the living God. There is no other answer. That's the only place we can turn. And that living and active spirit of God that can heal the brokenness in our city, check out the way he's chosen to act in and through the local church, which is still the hope of the world. So Toronto is a place of refuge. Toronto is a place of cultural energy accumulation, but will it be a place of witness? That's up to us, because this is God's call for his church. This is our purpose, this is our vision, this is what I'm calling us back to today, this is our design, this is what God made us for. We are meant to be God's witnesses in this great city. We're meant to speak his grace and healing to every nook and cranny. From Regent Park to Bradford, from Leaside to Newmarket, from Oshawa to Pearson Airport, from King Street to Lake Simcoe, from the CN Tower to Barrie, the church, the local church, is the one and only witness of God's grace and the one and only hope of the greater Toronto area. So my encouragement and my exhortation to you today is to weep for our city just like Jesus did for his. Wail, cry out. Weep for the brokenness and spiritual confusion that is so evident everywhere you go. Weep for a people who need to know the time of God's visitation on them in the, in the person of his son Jesus. Weep for families that need the healing touch of God. Weep because just as Jerusalem was laid to waste physically, our city has been laid to waste spiritually. And hurt and anger and brokenness are the result. We, as the local church, join our hearts with God's heart, join our hearts with the heart of Jesus, and we weep for the brokenness in our great city just like Jesus did for his. This is God's call for us. So practically speaking, what does our great city need? What does our great city need? I'm going to give you four things, and then we'll be done. Four things. The first thing our great city needs is grace. Our great city needs grace. For those of you who are here week in and week out, you almost knew it would come down to this, didn't you? We talk about grace a lot around here. Let me clue you in. If we're talking about God, it's always going to come down to grace. Remember that when Jesus saw the great city of Jerusalem and saw the brokenness that was so evident there, he didn't quote a verse. He didn't start a petition. He didn't ask them to join a Bible study. He didn't attempt to fix their moral compass. The first thing he did was weep uncontrollably. He poured out undeserved favor, grace in the form of tears on a city that would eventually, just a few days later, reject him and crucify him, by the way. He pours out grace. Is that your heart? 
Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of times I'm, I'm more interested in convincing people I'm right than I am weeping for this great city that God has called me to. If we're going to live out what Jesus modeled for us, our first response to our city should be a heart that pours out grace in the form of tears. That's what Jesus modeled. That's all there is to it. This is his call for us to pour out grace on our city. Number two, our great city needs prayer. Our great city needs prayer. We're going to rewind to the prophet Jeremiah. Look back at what Jeremiah commands Israel to do. Even when the nation of Israel, God's people, they're in Babylonian exile. They're not in their home country. They're in a pagan nation. And he says this. He writes this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray for your city. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. So Jeremiah says to the nation of Israel, even though you're in exile, even though you're living in a pagan city, even though you're waiting for God's ultimate vindication and for his perfect kingdom to come, still pray for your city. How do we pray? Three times in that verse, Jeremiah says that one word, welfare. We're called to pray for our city's welfare. We're called to pray blessing for our city, for good things for our city. Too often we go to God and we pray for our city and we kind of complain about our government and on our, about our leaders, don't we? How about we obey what the Bible says and make a change? Let's start praying for the welfare of our city, for good things, for blessing for this great city of Toronto. Number three, City needs leaders. Our city needs leaders. I don't have time to get into all this today, but a few verses later, Jesus would chastise the leaders in Jerusalem because they were too self-focused. They focused on being churchy and religious, and they missed that whole praying for the city's welfare thing, by the way. Jesus wasn't a fan of people who claimed to be leaders that didn't actually lead people toward God's presence and grace, by the way. Just as Jesus knew Jerusalem needed great leaders, our city needs great leaders too. Christian men and women who set the bar of integrity high, that are generous and forthright, that are kind, that do their craft with excellence. If you're a leader in our city, in the, in the greater Toronto area, can I just let you in on a little secret? I'm going to say something that elders are not going to like. That's okay. We do a lot of stuff here. We do small groups here, and we're going to launch more as we go forward. We do classes here. We do worship service here. We do events. We do all kinds of stuff, and it's all good stuff, and you should go, I think. But if you can't, if you're a leader in this city, and the only thing that you can do is show up here on a Sunday morning and lift your voice with us in song and hear from God's word, and then you turn around in this great city of Toronto and you lead well in business, law, music, culture, education, finance, marketing, sports, art, fashion, whatever, then good on you. Keep it up. You have a pass from me to attend anything else. <laughs> Just lead well, keep doing it. Keep pushing this great city toward God's grace. And let me know how I can help. Because our city needs great leaders like you. Number four, 
Number four, and with this we'll be done. Our great city, just as Jerusalem did, needs great witnesses. Our great city needs great witnesses. Remember, Jesus explains to Jerusalem, here's the reason why all of this brokenness, all of this destruction, all of what's going to come upon you, here's the reason why you're about to experience it. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, you did not recognize King Jesus. But I love Paul's rhetorical question in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, look up here on the screen. Paul writes this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Here's what Paul is saying. The end goal... The end goal is that people would call on Jesus. But in order to call on him, you've got to believe in him. And in order to believe in him, you've got to hear about him. And in order order for you to hear about him, someone has to tell you. And you might be thinking, yes, that's why we hired Lucas. No, that's not my job as a pastor. That's my job as a Christian. And if you're a Christian, it's your job too to be a witness for Jesus, to tell somebody about him, to help them understand the time of God's visitation here on this planet in the person of his son, Jesus. Our great city needs great witnesses for Jesus, those who live a life that honors him and those who aren't afraid to tell someone that needs to hear about him. Men and women of God, this is the call of Christ for the church. To respond to his heart, to hold tightly to the things that he valued, and to weep for this city that's so broken and in need, that is so bruised and battered. Think about this. As you walk around the city, as you walk around your office, as you walk around your school, think about this. You will never lock eyes with an individual who does not matter to God. Never. Every person that you see has a story. Every person that you see has a background. Every person that you see matters to Jesus. And because a city is made up of people and because they're absolutely critical, our call, our expectation is to weep for our city and let our hearts break for it, to pray for it, to be a witness, and to show our city grace. I asked Brad and the team, if you guys want to just come back up, I asked Brad and the team to conclude with a song this morning that I just wanted to invite you to just listen to for a little while. It's called God of the City. Some of you may have heard it before, uh, but my invitation is that you would just quietly reflect on these lyrics. They're up here on the screen. And let them be your prayer today as we declare God's sovereignty in this city of Toronto. And then here in a moment, as they kind of get to the end of the song, Brad will invite us to stand and join with him and sing that chorus. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you stir up in us a heart that grieves for the brokenness in the city that you've placed us in, this city that you've called us to. God, we want to cry out like 
your son Jesus did. We want to weep like your son Jesus did. We want to buckle over because of the spiritual brokenness that is so evident everywhere we go. Remind us today, oh God, even as Brad and the team sing, remind us that you are God and you're in control and this is what you called us to, to be a blessing to the city of Toronto. Amen.